Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you're new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, you can head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and virtual events. And during our second hour, we tend to spend a little bit more time on, and today we'll be talking about producing for global events. So you want to stay tuned and get your questions in early for our team. You know what, Bill? We've got a lot of questions stacked up. Let's get this party started. We do, Liberty. Our first one comes from Matt Wood in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the UK. He says, do, uh, do the panelists have any tips on setting up a sturdy, non-obtrusive mount for an overhead camera in a standard ad-desk studio setup, i.e. the top camera to cut to as an alternative view through the ATEM Mini? We can start with you, Bill. Well, this is one of those circumstances where you're dealing with what is called grip gear to try to mount cameras wherever. You can do it simply with a desk stand and some kind of overhead. Uh, some of us go to more elaborate things. And in fact, I'm going to cut to my secondary camera over my head. My ceiling, which is a standard bedroom ceiling, now looks like that. You, uh, Those white poles are what are called Manfrotto auto poles, and they are what I use to hang all of the various things that I need to light and set up my space here. You don't have to go to this extreme, but I really like those because they're really easy to put up and you can take down. You can even move them to another room. If we're gonna, if I was going to do something in the kitchen, for example, I could just dismount those in, in a couple of minutes, move them somewhere else, and I'd have a, a firm overhead point for mounting camera lighting and the rest of those kind of things. One one type of solution. Mitchell? Uh, like Bill, uh, I use a Veripole across the uh, ceiling. Uh, you can see a shot of it there, and I use it for lighting, which I'll show David Brady next. Uh, but uh, putting super clamps on, you can put anything on there. You can put cameras, you can put uh, pocket ca cinema cameras, lighting fixtures, all kinds of good stuff. So it's, uh, it's, it's really easy. Made by Impact, it's called the Veripole. And Alex. Yeah, if you look on Discord and behind the scenes, I, I was trying to find the photo really quickly on this other computer and I just couldn't pull it up fast enough, but you'll see a little behind the scenes of me building out my new studio, which you can see is only partially partially lit, partially set up right now. Um, and what I'm using, of course, is uh, the maker pipe. So I went out and bought um, a whole bunch of EMT rail. Um, and uh, and so I have a grid that I just built. So it's a basically a four by four grid over top of me. And that just, it, instead of having a place that I'm putting stuff, I have a lot of places to put stuff. And if I need extra uh, resolution, I can add more more poles to it. Um, these are the corners are held up by four C-stands. And what's nice about that is that I can bring everything down, work on it, and then pull it back up again. <laughs> so so I can, you know, kind of move it up and down. It only takes a couple minutes for me to bring the whole um, kit, about five minutes, I can bring the whole grid down. And then I can just adjust it back up again. And so um, I find that to be, uh, I'm, I have to admit that I got into grids maybe a decade ago and very have not had a studio without them since. And then I see, Jesse, that you also added in the comments that magic arms for small rigs, um, for small rigging, how small? What do you define as small? Uh, just a webcam or a small overhead cam that you're just using as a document camera, something like that. Um, I, my setup is sort of a monitor mount that's clamped to the desk, and then the magic arm is clamped to that monitor mount. So something simpler there. All right, next question. David Brady in New York City is up next. And David says, reworking lighting in my studio with width is seven feet, the height is eight feet. Without drilling into the walls of or ceiling, what kind of mounting options are there to make room for bigger lighting rigs? What we were just talking about. Go ahead, Courtney. 
Uh, well, you can move to you know a mini truss, and there are several here that you can get starting from uh, these fairly uh, beefy ones down to the ones that Amazon suggests. This one here that's um, a uh, a T. It has these little T bars on the top of it. You can see on either side. That'd be useful for putting a backlight uh, behind you or off to the side or changing something. You can swivel them left or right and uh, put additional lightweight instruments on them. The stands don't look too uh, beefy there, so I'd be worried about that. But it'd give you a truss across the top, and it's pretty reasonably priced. And you can probably wedge it into uh, the situation that you're, you need, and you can probably change the length of that truss. Mitchell. Yeah, I was just showing uh, my Veripole that's in the background. There it is again. Uh, the Veripole works really well. And one of the things you can do if you have a uh, uh, a grid-based ceiling, I'll see if I can uh, zoom in on here a little bit so you can see it. Uh, you can see the, uh, uh, the scissor clamp there that goes from the pole up to the grid, and it just gives it a, just a little bit more um, uh, support. So what you can do with these uh, varipoles is you can attach just to just about anything. And if you notice on the left side of the varipole, if you're pu putting it horizontally, place a piece of wood or something so you don't punch a hole through your drywall, uh, which I almost did. Uh, that'll give you an extra support there for it. And Alex. And you get a second question. I have enough time to get to show you what I'm working on. So uh, this is the behind the scenes of what I have at the moment. And so you'll, you'll see here the C stands on the corners. Uh, this is the um, the grid that I've been building with the uh, with the um, uh, maker pipe. Um, I probably I got this before they had the one inch version of this, and I probably get the one inch version now just to give it a little bit more rigidity. Um, but you could also make this. You could you know look at how to make a vertical one. I think they actually make feet for maker pipe as well. And the key is to um, you want to get pieces that you can push against the wall. So you're not going to attach anything to the wall, but you get it built up, and then you push against each each side of the wall just a little bit and it'll stabilize the whole thing. I'm not doing that because I have the C-stands, but the C-stands might, you'll lose about a foot on either side with the C-stands. So take that into account. Next question. Next one comes to us from Vipin Abraham in Pune, India. And he says, recommendations for teleprompter apps on the iPad. Any advice or pitfalls to look out for? Go ahead, Courtney. Don't use a teleprompter app on the iPad. <laughs> That's my tip. Why is that? Uh, well, editing is a problem. Uh, and uh, as a being a teleprompter operator for over 35 years, um, very rarely, unless you're just reading your own scripts and you're happy with them when you load them in, um, there's always script changes. And if you're using them for anyone other than yourself, I would advise against using something like the iPad because getting text in and out of it is a problem. Uh, even scrolling is a problem. You know, you can use your phone to control some of the iPad apps, but uh, as a controller, you have to, there's no way to, I mean, well, there's no easy way to run a second monitor off of it so an operator can see the, see what you're seeing in the lens because it's reversed. And uh, so, you know, you have to have a, a, a right reading version and a reverse reading version for an operator to run it. If you're running it yourself, you know, there's lots of uh, cheesy teleprompter software out there for like five bucks that you can get, but it's worth every penny of that five bucks. Alex? I'm going to agree with Courtney. <laughs> so so I, I've only been doing teleprompter work for about 20 years, not quite as much long as, as uh, and uh, I, here's the problem with um, picking things that seem easy or cheap is that they 
start defining your workflow. So you can't do things. And so you do them. You don't, you don't adjust your script as often because it's more cumbersome. You don't update it as often. You don't, you, you read it in certain ways. You can definitely get away with things like on, on an iOS, but I will say is if you have ever actually used teleprompt software on a computer that goes to a screen, you will be frustrated. Like, you know, like if you, if you do that, you will know that you are compromising and you'll, and eventually if you do a lot, if you've done a lot of it, I mean, I used to do uh, two or three hours a day of teleprompt work and I didn't, wasn't the operator, but I, we, we had it there and, and I did a lot of it actually. And as soon as I opened the iPad, I was like, oh, I can't, you know, all the stuff that all the stuff that Courtney said, and and again, you it 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 uh, it degrades the quality of the script, in my opinion, unless you've read it a thousand times and you're just loading it in and going. Um, that's not usually what happens. Usually, what happens is as you read it, you go, "Oh, let's change that word," or "Oh, let's move this over," or "Oh, can you underline this?" And on a on an iPad, it's I've never seen one that is is really as fluid or nearly as fluid as having a good teleprompt operator on a computer making those adjustments it's it's very magical when it, when you have someone who's good at it with a good piece of software bill i'm going to support what everybody has said here but if you must if you absolutely have a circumstance a use case where you must have some kind of teleprompt that it's less professional and you have to do it yourself the two that i've run into teleprompt plus 3 i've had on my on my laptops and on my uh, ipads and phones for about five or six years. In a pinch, it has done good service for me. The other thing that I've moved to is here for an occasional complex message that I have to do, like the close of the show where there's a whole bunch of things. I have a little software called Virtual Teleprompter Pro. It is not full featured at all. The only time I use it is when I have to throw something up on this monitor just to do something complex for a client or for the show or something like that. I would not use this in any kind of professional circumstance, but it works fine for that. That's all. And Jesse. Yeah, another uh, solution might be to use the NDI monitor app on your iPad. And granted, it will work better if the iPad is wired into your network. Then you can use a free software like OBS to flip around your NDI source going to that iPad however you want to. And then, of course, you can use your computer with your uh, teleprompting software to uh, generate that. And I'll just add like cosign to what else has been said, especially when you're like the talent that you're working with is that they're coming in. And if there has not been a lot of coaching, if they have not rehearsed and just how that will impact the quality of whatever you're shooting, just them either being frustrated with words bouncing around and just so more than just the technology, but then also how it will impact the end results of what you are um, producing. Alex? And, and finally, I'll say that, you know, teleprompting is really best done by people who are professionals at reading it as well. <laughs> so so if, if, if it's going to be a casual thing, uh, I wouldn't use a teleprompter, um, you know, so I think that's the other the other side of that. Um, you can use it, but it just takes an enormous. And again, I would definitely not do it in a way that I couldn't edit things because it's, you're going to have to follow along. You really need to surround someone with who doesn't do this very often to, um, you know, to, to make sure that they survive it. Um, oftentimes what we've done that's been a little bit better is plan ahead and have them literally memorize small sections of it at a time and talk through it. And you get end up with a lot more energy um, that, than what you would have otherwise. Yeah, we found that to work well. It was because depending on, again, who you're working with, is that if they are like educators or experts and they're coming in, that that will also help with the, just their energy on, mm -hmm. on camera. Bill? 
Yeah, I was going to say 100% on all of this stuff. One thing that I will say is that the traditional teleprompt idea, which is to scroll everything that the person on camera is supposed to say, does require a lot of skill and, and getting comfortable with doing that. It is not easy to sound natural while you are reading into a camera. But to be able to use the teleprompt process to throw up a maybe a bullet point list or something so that you can speak to a variety of points without missing something or getting lost is a useful thing to have around occasionally. Next question. Next question comes to us from Jeff Francis in Columbia, South Carolina. For the A10 Mini ISO line, are the Samsung T7 SSDs approved or should they still be avoided? Go ahead, Richard. Uh, yes, um, a couple of different lists um, have now given the T7s a, a, a affirmative that they work with the, the A10 Mini ISOs. Um, but once bitten, twice very 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 shy um and i wouldn't bring my t7 after after a production where we were let down uh by one uh thankfully we never got through to actually starting to record we noticed it beforehand and moved it over to something else but once bitten i will not try a t7 to do a, a proper record but they are meant to be rated instead i use the, the sandisk uh, extreme pros now for our iso records if we need to do it in a uh, in the a10 mini mitchell i agree with richard um you would think that the T7 would be better than the T5. The T5 is discontinued. You can still find them if you look deep, deeply enough. But the problem with both of them, more so on the T7, uh, and we've mentioned it here on the uh, program before, Jeff, is that as you fill that drive up, it's going to uh, become very, very hot and also start to uh, misread. And uh, uh, its throughput's going to come to a crawl. So uh, it is a it is an issue so I would stay away from it and go with something like uh, Richard was showing. Um, and, or if you can find a, an older T5, it's going to work a little bit better than that. And Alex. And you can buy your own MVMEs. Um, the, oh, we, I think it was, oh, was it Oben that, that, we, that we showed on, on the Cinegear that I bought nice. a couple of those drives and they, they worked really well. Um, the thing with the seven, the seven, both the T5 and the T7 is about 400 gigs they slow down. So if you're constantly writing to them, to when they get to about 400 gigs, they at one time um, they start to crawl because of i believe heat issues but it seems to be pretty predictable and um so we we don't do any i mean i still do the t5s and they seem to be working okay but i wouldn't i mean i back up things to t7s but i would never use t7s in in a production environment and in the chat mickey makachor recommends angelbird gtech and delkin go ahead john the main difference between the T5 and T7 is actually the cache that it has. And so once it runs out of that space is when you start to really running into issues. So if you're punching a lot of bandwidth through, uh, obviously the heat's going to also be an issue if it's long-term, but uh, any sort of bursting that's going to happen is going to exceed that cache. It, the speed will go down and that's when you really start having issues with video. The T5 had a much larger cache. Good points there. Next question. Paul Buchan in Columbus, Ohio says, for those who watch Formula One, the app F1 Multiviewer, and it's f1mv.com, has completely changed my viewing experience forever. Is this type of experience the future of second screen for sporting events? Go ahead, Alex. By and large, that experience, F1 has been really successful at it, actually. I've talked to a couple people connected to it, and it's uh, that has worked really well for them. And I'm not we're not sure exactly why, because it has been seen as pretty much a failure everywhere else. So um, there's been enormous amounts of time over the last 15 years. I probably worked on 10 events, 10 different initiatives that cost millions and millions and millions of dollars to execute. Um, and uh, what what we found was that people jumped onto that multi view 
They spent a couple minutes on it, thought it was really cool, and then never came back because the curated view of the show is better. Um, I think that one of the things that makes it work for Formula One is that it is, there's just a lot going on in a lot of different places and different people are interested in different things. So I think that that, that second screen experience works when you have kind of an adventure type, it could be a marathon, it could be a race like that where there's a, where the where the, everybody's spread out and people are different interested in different things, um, maybe a place that makes the most sense. Um, so that that's a possibility. Um, but I know like for football, basketball, hockey, <laughs> all of those things, uh, we've we've tried them and they have not been they we just don't see any sustained viewership, you know, in them. So I think that races maybe, um, but but maybe not long races, but not necessarily anything that has a centralized point of view. Next question. Mark Steele in Orlando, Florida says, have any of the panelists watched HBO's House That Dragons Built, the behind the scenes of the House of the Dragon program? I just discovered it this weekend and watched all 10 episode and found episodes and found it a fascinating example of HBO's incredibly high production standards. Let's start with Mitchell. Yeah, invariably, you're going to compare it to Game of Thrones. It's a completely different show in a sense that it's acting very much like a stage show uh, with a lot of special effects in it. The acting is superb, uh, but the speed of it uh, works at the speed of a, uh, a stage or a theater type program, uh, pretty much set in the castles or castles. And you're not going to get that sweeping vista that Game of Thrones gave you. If you're looking for a little more variety, uh, the version that Saturday Night Live uh, did with Dave Chappelle recounting all his characters in a Game of Thrones uh, uh, House of the Dragon uh, parody I think, was quite good. I think the question is mostly about the behind the scenes of that. Um, and I think that the, um, the, the behind the scenes, I think, is uh, – I, I, I haven't seen it yet. I'm glad that you brought it up. I didn't know it was there. <laughs> so, uh, the, you know, what I would say is that um, I think that this is, we're going to see more and more behind the scenes productions because it's a relatively inexpensive way to, um, uh, to, to keep viewers watching between big shows. <laughs> so, so by putting there, you know, it's, it's, the cost is a thousandth of the cost of actually doing the episodes. Um, and I think that, uh, um, I think that we're going to see more and more behind the scenes. Yeah, so I think that Disney has really shown what you can do with that. Even even a very high-end Light and Magic, which is probably one of the best documentaries about ILM, uh, was a fraction of the cost of anything that ILM's actually worked on. Yeah, I was going to add to that of just like Marvel has really set, and, and thank you, uh, Mark, for bringing this to my attention so that I can um, check it out. Marvel has done a fantastic job with just all of the, the content they put on Disney and the behind the scenes. And, and you really have to be think through that part of things because some of the, the content that they shared is like, oh, wait, this is years before. So they've been documenting the entire way. And that's now really becoming um, becoming a standard. It if anything, I wish that they would be less uh, produced in more content. Like I think that you could put out for a Star Wars or, you know, Star Wars like Andor or whatever. I, as a viewer, I'd be happy with 20, 30 hours of behind the scenes and breakdowns of shots and everything else and not make it so shiny and just make it, just give us more of it because it's it's usually pretty interesting. And Mitchell? I, I'm sorry, I didn't see the behind the scenes show, but th did they spend more time with... Um, showing how they did the CGI dragons because they are spectacular in the actual show. I don't know. I haven't seen well, it. Well, I'll have to check it out and, yeah, we'll and come out. back with our yeah, come yeah. back with our insights. Next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana is up next for purchasing a dedicated mobile studio for interview video and sound recording, trailer or box man. Thoughts? 
Alex? In the past, we've done both. Um, so the trailer, we've used trailers and usually what they've been is some, you know, a, a Winnebago <laughs> that has a what's called a toy hauler in the back. So it's designed to put a car or something else in that back area. And then we turn that back area into a studio. Um, and those can, you know, a nice thing about a lot of those is that they are single or double expando. So you can open them up. So they, they come, they, they're compact, uh, the, the toy hauler part, um, usually not as much, but can open up a little bit to it as well. And so you open that up and now you've got a little bit more room um, to work than, than you might have a box truck. The problem with the box trucks, unless they're built out as an expando, uh, which they can be, um, is that you're stuck with the eight foot, eight foot width. And so, um, but if you can get one that actually expands out, um, which we've seen a couple of them that you can add a couple feet to it on either side, you end up with a really nice um, setup. I, I prefer the box trucks overall when they're long enough to put a studio in. So it's not like a 14 foot, but you're thinking 18 feet, 24 feet long or 22, 22 feet long. Um, the, uh, when you get longer where you can put a studio in and then you can expand them out, which, which is a little bit of a, a little bit of work there. Um, then it makes work, makes sense. Um, you can kind of float them, you know, so just so you know, like you can put, you can, you can get, um, you know, uh, eight inches on all the way around it and put someone in there and you really need it. Like you think, oh, mobile and we'll go in and we'll put them in there. But you, 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 there's just so much environmental sound around almost anywhere you park that truck. You, you really want to think about um, an air gap between everything around it if you're actually going to use it on the road. And Courtney. Yeah, Alex covered all the high points. Remember, if uh, you're on a trailer or a truck, you know, the, the place you're going to park it, there's going to be other traffic around. So you have to isolate it. And to isolate, you have to seal up all the air. And to seal up all the air means it's going to get hot in the winter and summer and may not be insulated as well. So you have to have some air handler system that works quietly so it won't interfere with the uh, soundtrack. So those are all considerations. If you're going to build it out yourself, you could go for a fifth wheel. If you've got a dually, a big pickup truck to haul it around, you could go with a fifth wheel type trailer and outfit it yourself, gut it. Uh, you could, might be able to go to one of these uh, trailer manufacturing companies, and there are a couple in the Southwest, that uh, build these things and have them custom build you a box uh, with a double walls insulation on it. And they will have, of course, all the, uh, the right kind of air conditioning units, 12 volt, low voltage air conditioning, and uh, inver or inverters uh, for high voltage to uh, power the thing uh, while it's mobile. That's another consideration. Unless you're going to park it somewhere near a power drop, you have to power all that equipment silently while you're parked. And Bill. I've been surprised that I don't see a ton of these. And I think one reason might be one of the things Mickey made the comment in the, the chat that <laughs> boxes sound boxy and, you know, getting a good vocal presence in something that is by the time you take a rectangular flat wall dimension thing and you build in insulation and everything else, it becomes pretty small and boxy. It's the same kind of thing. The wrong mic in a voice booth sounds muddy and, and dense because it is boxy. So it's something you have to watch out for. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia up next. He says, is it a known issue with the ATEM that when you get green image, uh, that you get a green image sometimes? I first turn on the ATEM and then the camera, the camera into HDMI 2. There's a screenshot attached, he says. And using a quality HDMI cable cannot reproduce this on every boot up, but he is getting a green screen at least occasionally. Go ahead, Mitchell. 
Alexander, I haven't seen that, and it's not typical of an ATEM to uh, create that. Sometimes a gray screen with uh, no image at all, uh, we call it ATEM gray. But uh, what you were describing using the camera and your HDMI 2 cables, keep it, ugh, that is kind of gross looking. Um, keep in mind that uh, there is a difference between HDMI cables. Uh, if you want some examples, uh, Gerald Undone does a great uh, YouTube on that over at Condor Blue that there is a huge difference between uh, highly rated HDMI cables. So first thing, swap the cable. Next thing, swap the camera and see if you can still reproduce it. Alex? That really looks like an HDMI cable problem. Yeah. Or connector, yeah. I was, I was going to say, um, Alex, that yes, that happened to me. It's been a while now. And um, I, it was an office hours question I had, and JJ was like, check your cables. And I haven't seen that since. So check your cables. Courtney? Yeah, I'd say cable or connector. You're getting one of the digital signals, but not all of them. They're you know you're getting the green, but not the blue and the red. So uh, that or um, it's either the connectors or maybe check. Maybe you've got a directional cable because some HDMI cables have little amplifiers in them and are, can only be used unidirectionally. You have an input and an output, and make sure they're in the right direction if they have any arrows on them. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says, has anyone used Mac OS automation tools like Alfred, and he's got the link there, or Keyboard Maestro in production? I'm started by building shortcuts to launch After Hours and Mukana, but I'm curious what production-related automatable tax tasks the panel has found. Go ahead, Alex. I used to use a lot of automation tools, and the reason I don't do it anymore is because I do. I use too many different computers, and and I and I sit down on other people's computers, and I have learned that if I have a lot of automation tools, I feel crippled when I go to a computer that doesn't have those those automation tools, and it became frustrating enough in the fact that I change computers so often, and that I can't keep them on all of them, that I decided not to use any of them and just force myself to know what the OSs do fairly vanilla. And it's the same reason I rarely uh, update or change the keystrokes on most of my apps is because I want to be able to sit down at the app at any point in time in any kind of any computer and be able to operate it um, without having to try to remember something um, uh, that I've created. And Mitchell. Maybe they're just picking on me, but the A lady does weird things with my uh, Sony TV in the middle of the night. I'll wake up and uh, the TV has been turned on and it's on the dog channel. And my dog is sort of looking at me sheepishly. I don't think I snore Alexa commands. Uh, I just think that having anything that's a command, that's a spoken word with a device that's anticipating uh, what you actually just said uh, is, is uh, just grounds for something weird and crazy to happen during a live program. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia is up next. Are constant aperture lenses more difficult to manufacture than variable? I like that my Lumix camera can remain wide open even at the extreme end of the telephoto zoom. Are there any technical trade-offs? Alex? Alex, Alex, do you have a you have a, a, a lens that is fixed? Yeah, aperture? so the, the the lens, it's a non-user replaceable lens, but the one on the FZ300, it's 2.8 through the entire range from 24 to 600. Oh, oh I, I thought you meant uh, that it didn't, the aperture it, didn't change at all. I was like, whoa, that is amazing. Bring that on the show. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. I was, like, I was like, I've never heard of that before. Yeah, so the... Um, uh, it is definitely more expensive to do a constant aperture, you know, to be able to go all the way wide and stay there. And so you'll only see that on the more expensive lenses uh, that, that go all the way through. And so, um, yeah, so that you will see them close down. It's pretty common, even on high-end lenses. We have 
uh, the, like for instance, the Cabrio lenses I think that we have will start to close down as you get longer um, down the path. And those are ten, fifteen thousand dollars lenses or up to $30,000 lenses and they will still change aperture. So it is building that out is definitely more expensive and people make a choice uh, related to that. Um, the one thing to also notice is that aperture, uh, you know, a lot of us like to keep it wide open, mine's wide open right now, but note that you are a little softer on the, on your all the way out. So um, typically um, when you actually put them against charts, your app, your sharpness of your camera is at its highest, typically around 5.6. Um, and then, and then it becomes, it, everything gets out of focus, but your the lens, it's oftentimes, especially with still lenses, you'll find that as you go wider than a 5.6, it will appear sharper, but it is actually, when you actually put it on a chart, it is a little softer, um, especially in the, in the vignette, um, than, than the, uh, than right in the middle of that, of the, the meat of the lens. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. How do you do a great behind-the-scenes production? Are sometimes the behind-the-scenes productions more popular than the show itself? Go ahead, Alex. I've worked on a couple of these, and and you know, at different levels of of, of success. Uh, part of it is is getting buy-in from the people who are shooting it, so they have to be open to. You're going to be in there. You're a little bit intrusive. One of the goals is that you are as little, you, you impact the production as little as possible. It's really expensive. There's a, it costs a lot per hour. You can't really stop the production to do that. So you really have to be very quiet. Um, one of the things you have to be careful of is what kind of cameras you're using and whether they make any noise. Like So, so shooting like the behind the scenes with a little red is a horrible idea because it may, has a big little fan noise. When you see behind, behind the scene pictures, you'll see people in what's called a blimp. It's literally, oftentimes it's like a, it's a, it's a Pelican case that, that has the camera inside or something that looks like it with a big button that they push to make sure that they don't make any sound while, while the actual event's going on. Making sound during the event is, you know, how you not get to finish your behind the scenes. So, um, so the, so that's one of the things, understanding what the shoot is and what's coming up is another big piece of, of, of what that is so you know what to pay attention to and that means you're really there for all the rehearsals you're in re oftentimes you're shooting that um and uh, and then also trying to work with the a lot of what makes these work is working with the post crew to get to have them save out and this is asking them to do that typically hey can you make sure to save out versions of these things now a lot of times they have those versions but not always and if they're conscious to it they'll save out some little videos of oh i have a preview of something in wireframe or i have something like that and and especially if you pick certain shots you can't usually cover all the shots these days but if you pick certain shots like this is going to be a great shot and you're working with someone you're going to follow that all the way through and you go okay it's going to be Previs, and it's going to be this, and it's going to be shot, and then it's going to be posted, and then it's going to be composited, and then there's 3D models, and make that list and make sure you're getting all that content, um, you know, from from what they're doing as close to it in real time as possible. You'd be surprised at how much visual effects and everything else gets lost along the way because once they're you know they're dealing with a lot of these and they don't necessarily keep every test render, and those test renders can be a lot of fun to to, to be part of it. Um, and then of course you have interviews. You often want to capture capture those interviews at the set with the set behind it and that's one of the things that's a little bit challenging but you can use downtime lunchtime break times to um and you work with the you know you work with the ad typically to figure out when you're going to get to be able to do that and then you have to be all set up you don't get to say you don't get to redo it <laughs> so they're going to sit down they're going to answer a couple of questions and they're going to walk away and you got to make it super easy to make that happen um, i still think that after all these years probably the best behind the scenes that we've seen are um, the Matrix and the White Rabbit uh, on the DVD, the Armageddon um, Criterion release, 
traffic criterion really criterion is really good at this and a lot of their stuff is found footage um but those are some of the best ones to to take a look at if you want to look at um, best in best in class courtney yeah alex covered fairly thoroughly uh having worked on a few behind the scenes movies on movies for many years uh I'll let you know that in the olden days, it was a lot more, it was a lot tougher when you're shooting film. You'd usually be shooting 16 millimeter on Spielberg's movies. I worked on a second unit behind the scenes on uh, ET. Everything was shot in 35 millimeter, even the behind the scenes stuff with the Panaflex. He'd use the the B camera, the C camera operator to shoot behind the scenes with a separate sound mixer. The other thing is befriend the uh, sound mixer on the set, and. Uh, Ask him if you can if he can give you a line out feed that you can uh, plug into a transmitter and make sure you clear the frequencies with him first, uh, so that you have a feed of the production mixer so that you don't have to get in close with a shotgun or something. If they're in the middle of a scene, you can hear the actor actual actors doing the scene in a feed from the sound mixer, and of course you have to arrange all this with the production company and make sure all the actors directors, everyone else knows you're with an authorized behind-the-scenes crew because publicists, actors, everything, you know, a lot of actresses will not let uh, behind-the-scenes crews shoot them when they're not in makeup or when they're partially made up. Uh, so there's a, you're walking on a lot of eggshells there with uh, egos, so you have to be fairly careful of that and take all that into consideration and always go, as Alex said, through the first AD because they're in charge of scheduling the actors and, uh, and the scenes and arranging the scenes and the directors and can tell you when there's going to be a break when they have to do a major reset or a, a, you know, a scene change or a location change. Uh, you have to work that into their schedule. And a lot of times you'll show up to do an interview and they say, well, we can give you 20 minutes with the actor, but we don't know when. And you'll be set up on a second stage somewhere uh, that on a set that they're not using that day. And you'll wait for six or seven hours for them to decide that they have a break where they can break that actor away for 10 minutes to give you the interview. So be prepared to sit around for a long period of time. And I'll pick up from where Courtney um, left off more so on the events and conference side of things, because we've been asked to capture the behind the scenes of like the making of the conference. And the thing is, one, you only have one shot in in those arenas and that typically if it's the event coordinator or speakers that you're trying to you know get some sound bites or information from you have to recognize that there's a lot of tact that you need to handle them with because they're in the zone or they've either just come off stage so they're already you know wanting to go on to the next thing so just being mindful of the the state of mind that those individuals in are in and then trying as best as possible to be a fly on the wall and or or working with the event coordinator or the PR firm to try to get access to some folks who might be a little bit more high level, um, just getting them on screen. And as Courtney said, ego, ego, ego. So as much as you want to get maybe some of those raw shots and in, in makeup, they're looking at their brand at the end of the day. And do they really want this documented in and on camera? Um, Guy? Yeah, I'll never forget that there was a uh, director that was up in a crane and uh, I was doing behind the scenes of a music video and I still remember him yelling at me, hey, video guy, get out of my frame. <laughs> so you gotta <laughs> use tact and be aware of where you're at at all times. The other thing is uh, when we did Mad in the Kitchen, there was 70 plus people, I remember, in the behind the scenes room and we had given them a PTZ camera where they could pick the shot. So there was chat going on and uh, there was more people watching live 
in the behind the scenes than on YouTube for the show. So that was something that I found really compelling, and I hope to do that more here in the future. And Alex, time lapse. Uh, the more, the more you, you can't get enough time lapse. Multiple angles. Um, you know, if if anywhere you can place a little camera, I've been using time lapse for the last fifteen years and behind the scenes and. It's just, it's just like uh, people just love watching it. Try to have more granularity. Try to go one second. Uh, every five seconds is a little bit quick. Um, you'd find, you think it won't be, but remember, it's thirty frames of the thirty of that time every every second. So um, once a second, I oftentimes will shoot video, just long term, long video that I'm going to use for time lapse because um, I then I can control what the rate's going to be later of how fast I want it to go so that it looks just the way I want it. I can also use all those extra frames to interpolate motion blur and make it anything from just a little motion blurry to a lot motion blurry and just have these, like what'll happen is if something really big is getting built up, you'll just see these little little streaks that are people that are there because you, you might set that motion blur to be across, you know, 30, 40 frames using time echo inside of After Effects. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. He says, an article about a recent Kenny Chesney tour mentions that the lighting director and the video technical director having to mix when the front of house engineer got sick, being primarily visual disciplines, would most LDs or TDs have an ear for quality sound and how much cross training would you need? Go ahead, John. I think you'd find that most people end up kind of floating between video and audio. Uh, as they're growing up and kind of maturing into something. So they would probably have some familiarness with well, what they're doing. They should have familiar with what show and what technology is being used. There's also like the show profiles are going to be built out. Those things go through months and months of programming before you go live. Uh, I mean, it's really going to be upon, I would assume the guy would probably, um, the audio guy who was sick would most likely still come on site and actually tune the room. Um, and then you would kind of take it, take it over from there. Uh, but most of it would be programmed and, and would be, you know, not exactly uh, starting from scratch, which would require a really good year. And Courtney. Yeah, as John said, uh, usually on a tour, especially on a tour where they're playing the same sets over and over again, or at least a collection of the same songs, they'll have profiles set up and saved for each uh particular song so they'll have uh, a scene scene stored in memory so that they can just recall that scene for that song and of course the uh, td and the lighting director uh will be familiar with those songs and know how to load the profile for each song and then it's just a matter of slightly tweaking something if you know somebody wanders off mic or something so i don't think it should be that difficult next question Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What's up with all the cables that come with iPhones and so forth that are USB-C only on both ends? What charging devices and hubs are recommended to replace the old USB-A hubs and charging bricks? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, the GAN-based ones are the ones you want to look for. Um, those are the best. Those are going to have the most power um, and uh, be able to take advantage of whatever the device is capable of. Um, and I don't have an Anchor makes a lot of good ones. Those are the the new bricks that that came. Is it like thirteen yeah, on? Yeah, the yeah okay. they're well. The, well, they. Uh, but I'm saying the the chargers themselves. You know, and you can get ones now that are hundred watt chargers. They're not a hundred watts all the way down if you plug everything in, but they can provide an enormous amount of of. Uh, if if you plug it into a laptop, it will work. But if you also plug it into your phone, it won't. You know, overdrive it either. It'll give it what it the most it will the the phone is willing to take. Got it, Courtney. Yeah, and be careful because the old A blocks uh, only have one one voltage, which is five volts usually, and uh, the C blocks have to support uh, five, nine, 
12 and 19. Uh, and be careful when you buy cables. This is a C to C cable. I just bought a whole package of them from Amazon. And it works great for data and charging, uh, only for 9 volts and 5 volts, and it does not carry video. So it doesn't work as a display port. Uh, and so if you're planning on extending a monitor over a C to C connection, be careful when you're ordering cables that they support DisplayPort only, and DisplayPort as well as data and charging, because a lot of them only support charging, and some of them only support um, data and charging. So there's three or four different types of them out there, and they never say what they are on the cable themselves. So when you pick one up, you never know until you plug it in. And Bill? Yeah, I think it's been a combination of the features on those USB-C cables. The good ones are uh, more robust. You can do 100-watt charging and things like that. The other thing, though, I, th I think I remember reading about a series of regulations in the European market that USB-C was the only thing that they would accept regulatorily because they wanted to get people out of the having to have six or seven different chargers for six or seven different devices, all of which worked on different standards. So I think there's some regulatory push to standardize, and I think in five years from now, they're probably going to be all that form factor rather than the old USB-A stuff. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, 8020, maker pipe and speed rail give you a lot of construction flexibility, but could any of these be painted and or stained to fit into a room's decor? Alex? Can. I'm sure you can find a way to make them look like they're part of the of the set. Uh, usually my direction is to go upward. So if I'm going to use them to do a lot of those, um, those things, I'm going to start, stop putting them from, you know, mounting them from the ground and mount them from the ceiling, um, and hang them down and get them out of the way. But, but I, I think that, you know, we've done things like paint them. The problem really with paint is if you start attaching things to them, it takes the paint off their metal and, um, and doesn't, we haven't found that it lasts, even if it's anodized, we haven't found that it lasts, uh, for a long time. And Courtney. Yeah, as Alex says, the paint paint's no good. It's going to flake off. Uh, you could have it powder coated. And that might help, but usually powder coating is only available in a couple of different colors, um, and it sticks to the aluminum very good. Uh, but uh, eventually, it's going to get scarred, and the and since you're attaching C clamps and things to them, uh, that that will abrade the surface. It's uh, it'll look used very quickly. Next question. Next question comes to us from Tony Mobley in Newton, Georgia. Liberty White, your team worked on TEDx Atlanta Women. What is the experience like behind the scenes? Uh, it was great. Uh, and context-wise, for those who are not familiar with TED, like TED Talks, the overarching um, brand, and then there are people who have licenses in various cities, and Jackie Chu um, is the one who she has the TEDx Atlanta. So this was the first time they did a, um, an Atlanta under her license. And so we came in doing the social. So the goal she asked was like, okay, we need to drive as many people to watching the live. So they it's in person. So they did it at the Center for Puppetry Arts. But then also for those people who couldn't be in attendance doing the live stream and another company um, produced the live. So we had the so this is like a quick snapshot of just like how um, when it comes to the social part of things is that she wanted a lot of um, video content and doing reels and that their audience was primarily on LinkedIn and Instagram. So that was three events across like two days. Um, and then just, we had a lot of prep. So whenever we're doing social for an event, we try as much as possible to have um, a spreadsheet with a list of all the speakers or the influencers or 
brands that will be on site. That way our comms person can just like go in and it's not like you have to memorize a whole bunch of handles. Um, and so that we already, and we already have a lot of pre-written scripts. So um, we also monitored the YouTube conversation. So welcome, tell us where you're from, like all of that copy, we have that done in advance so that we can really be on the fly responding to questions and things um, and things that people had. One of the things that or two of the things that worked really well was when we went live and we used, um, we leveraged one of their um, event court. No, it wasn't the event coordinator. She was over audience engagement and she took a tour. So kind of to the conversation we had before about behind the scenes, she, uh, the night before for rehearsals, we went live. So people were watching her talk about the setup, seeing some of the speakers on stage and then Every now and then she kept saying, and join us tomorrow so you can watch live. So that was how we were able to like focus on driving people to live and then on Instagram using um, using Instagram's link feature. So in every few stories, we would have a link that would remind people to go watch the live the next day and a countdown um, a countdown clock. So it was a great experience. It's Definitely like you're in the fire being behind the scenes, trying to capture content in front and everything. But they had a lot of results. I think on IG, they increased maybe like 2% um, audience. The thing that I would say anyone watching when you finish doing an event, now it's like, what's the maintenance that you have after the event to keep those people engaged? Because all these people are following you for this content, but you don't want to like lose that opportunity um, with your audience. So. Thank you for that. Next question. Next one comes from Roz McNulty in Vancouver, Canada. Any recommendations for a contact management software? I don't like Contacts Plus and haven't yet paid for HubSpot. Mac contacts are limited, is the note. Mitchell. It might be a case of the devil you know. Um, in my case, I've been using Outlook for so many years on a PC that uh, when I fell in love with the M1 Mac Mini, I wanted it on that and believe it or not, the Mac version looks and works even better than the PC version. So kudos to Microsoft this time. Alex? Yeah, I would say that the Mac, if you're on a Mac, the Mac Contacts is limited. It's just it's the only one that's remained stable for me over the last 10, 15 years. So, you know, the problem with taking on a new one is that you have to keep taking it on. And so... Um, I've tried a bunch of new ones, newer ones thinking, oh, I'll do this or I'll, you know, work with this. But then I'm now in a, I'm, I'm committed to something that I ended up not committing to. <laughs> so, so I think that that's the challenge you always have to think about. So context plus is because I haven't used it, it just for keeping your context or what is yeah, I don't know the what that benefit? Oh, okay. It, okay. It, it's, it, you know I'm saying? I use just the Mac. I just use the Mac context you know, because it's, okay. it's on all my devices. It's all, it's why I, I also don't use things like Evernote or anything else. I just use notes because it's on all the devices. It goes back for many years, you know, and it's easy for me to find what needs to happen. And I think that, that Apple does a pretty good job of going, I'm going to give you something good enough. It may not be as good as you could buy, but uh, it's always going to work. Um, and, uh, and you're not going to have to go find you know, figure out how to export things out and bring it into somewhere else. Okay. And the reason I, I asked that because there's a mention of HubSpot and we've tested out HubSpots, haven't made that investment yet. But if you're looking for, okay, these, it, I'd be curious as what's the purpose of you and, needing. And 
Oh, go, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, yeah. I was uh, the purpose of needing the contact software because many people, when they're looking into HubSpot, it's because you're pulling these people into a sales funnel where you can then, you know, make notes. So that I'm just curious as to what the end. So if you can put that in the chat and we can finish that. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah. And, and if it's, if it's a, um, if it's for personal is when I would say that when it is uh, as a group or a company, Salesforce is really popular. And the reason they do that is specifically so that a sales uh, operative can't leave and take a whole, take the Rolodex with them. So right. it's all part of a pipe, big pipeline that, that keeps all that there and shared. Um, and it, and it's, uh, it protects the company from um, losing uh, their contacts. Yeah. And Courtney. Yeah. For personal use, I use uh, Google's contacts because it's cross-platform. It works with Android Auto. It works in the car. I can dial phone numbers just using my voice in Android Auto because it ties into my Google contacts list. And um, I would not use it necessarily as a contact management system like Alex says for a a corporation or for business purposes. But for personal contacts, that's my favorite because it works across the phone, across all my multiple computers. It's always available in the Chrome browser, uh, so it's easy to get to. And Alex? I'm going to come at this from a different angle. For me, it's about data privacy, and I've tried lots of other contact apps and for me that I don't necessarily trust other products and services. Sometimes with, with these apps, if it's from a smaller independent developer, you know, long-term support is always a question. Sometimes those apps just go away because they don't really make money and they're not really sustainable. So that's just something to think about. Next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How do you introduce and control motion blur in a time-lapse? Is this possible with low frame count capture or only in video? Mitchell. Well, uh, first of all, you're doing the right thing because adding motion blur to any time lapse just makes it so much better because you're dealing with all these intra frame uh, blurring and things. I, I bring it into After Effects and uh, mess with uh, the shutter angles and uh, the amount of blur that's affecting. Uh, you can tweak it to, to your heart's content. I'm sure there's some formulas. Uh, that'll make it right depending upon what you shot it at, at what frame rate, all those things. But yes, and yes. Bill? And pretty much the same thing. Most of the software processors have time-lapse, have motion blur built in as an effect in post. And since you're doing time-lapse, obviously you're shooting at one frame rate and you're post-processing it afterwards. So almost all of them should allow you to do that and just search on motion blur as an effect and you can usually find it. And Alex. Yeah, so if you're using low frame rate uh, captures, what you're going to want to look at is revision effects, uh, make a, a, a real motion blur that can go back and start to reproduce it. So what it's doing is it's it's doing some, it's comparing frames and then rebuilding motion blur back into it. It's not as good as going the other direction. So if you have more frames than what you need, it's going to be much easier to interpolate those frames. And the thing that I've used for, I don't know, a couple of decades is, Time Echo. And so Time Echo is a very old plugin that comes with After Effects. And what it does is it lets you basically go back into frames and decide how far you're going back and what the level of transparency it is in the in the mix. And you can make that very dense if you have video. So if you're doing it every, let's just say you decide I want to take every five seconds and you shot 30 frames a second, you have 150 frames to work with to build that, to build that streak. Um, that you want to work on through that through that process. And you can decide how long that streak is and what the resolution of that streak is um, to make that work. It's not the most 
uh, elegant solution for this, and it takes a long time to render, um, but it looks really nice. <laughs> you know, so so I would recommend uh, taking a look at at that. Um, it's it's a little tweaky. I think you have to. I haven't done it for a little while, but uh, just remember that some of it has to be done with a pre-comp because of the way it's processing um, the uh, the frames. And so, um, but anyway, it's it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty slick um, thing to use for that type of thing. Um, and I like to go that direction. I wish someone built software that did that, but the only one that I've seen that really helps rebuild those things is uh, the revision affects some um, real motion blur. Next question. Tony Mobley, Noonan, Georgia. Panelists with young children or grandchildren, what are the technology devices or software you share with them that they'll not get in school? Guy? Yeah, my son plays a lot of Roblox. Uh, I'm not a huge fan, but he's totally into it. And uh, for my granddaughter, she really loves uh, the Wacom tablet. So that's something that I don't think that she's getting in school. Uh, also, the iPad Pro with the pen uh, using Pro procreate uh she's a little artist so she jams on that thing another thing that in the past has been uh just the 3d printers uh letting them pick stuff on to print and uh, they get a lot of joy out of that and um prodigy i think is the only other software that they use but they get that at school i think but it was recommended by school so i let them play on prodigy and I, my daughter has, she's on Sketchbook. Actually, Dan Flores mentioned that one. Um, some, I think it was last year we did a show with him for the kids, kids content um, that we create. So she's an artist as well. So that has been really helpful. Um, she's also using, oh, I forgot the language, um, the language app. So I have her doing Spanish every day. She's, she's on there for 30, do, uh, 30 minutes doing Spanish. And then there's also a coding one called Tinker. I'll look for that and and put the link in the chat. And yes, Guy, much like um, <laughs> your young one, yes, Roblox is all the rage with all of her friends. So those are the ones that, that she uses. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What folks do the most talking in comms in Office Hours 2.5? And what do they talk about? <laughs> Go ahead, Richard. Okay, so time to name and shame, isn't it? Who, who, who's the most chatty in comms? Is that what we're doing here? No, uh, of course not. Um, the office hours comms is actually quite quiet. Um, so it tends to be um, your your main roles, so your TD, your EIC, and then in, in our instance, the question manager. But because everyone, uh, we don't have a show caller, uh, a separate switcher and uh, and, and uh, show caller, it uh, comes during the show tends to be quite quiet, um, where most of the activity is if something goes wrong. So um, it's quite a quiet comms, but usually your TD, your sound team, your engineer and control are, are usually the most uh, talkative, uh, especially when things are are getting wrong, are going wrong. And Mitchell? Yeah, they're talking about you, Richard. Um, you're the uh, uh, you're the one that does the most talking, so I thought I'd pass it on. What they say, my lips are sealed. <laughs> Next question. Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia has a question for us. Does the panel have any recommendations for my conversation with Mr. Ed Bice, CEO of Meadan, M-E-E-D-A-N, on conversations with Tony Mobley? He's my first CEO. Tony, do you want to come on for a second to tell us a little bit about what we can expect as we we add some, some thoughts around this? Sure. Um, I am excited to have a conversation with Mr. Ed Bice, who is the CEO of Meeden. And I'll just share this with you guys. So Meeden is an organization 
that has our world has a global misinformation crisis. We are leaving the charge to address it. So that's what they do. They they um, they interact with the world in terms of information that's being shared out there. And they try to get at what is the real truth of what's going on in the world. So this is very different from traditional media and that's the work that they do. And I'm, I'm, I have to admit that I'm a bit um, excited that, that he agreed to have the conversation with me and I just wanted to see if the panel had any suggestions in terms of how I should treat this as this being my first CEO um, on Conversation with Tony Mobley. I think what makes conversations with Tony Mobley is that it's a conversation. So from, you know, someone who might not have the CEO title all the way up to the CEO that you get to the humanity part of things. So asking him questions around, yes, how he started and around maybe the future and the company and the organization, but then really like, how did he get there? And and insights and and um, where is it? Yeah, Mickey also shared, ask him about Maria Ressa, I hope I said that correctly, and how Medin has helped her and vice versa. So um, yeah, I wouldn't stretch too much of like how, looking at him different than folks that you have already, you've already spoken to because it's really the humanity behind conversations with Tony Mobley that makes it, um, that makes it stick. Alex? Sorry if I had an open mic there or a little earlier, I was yelling at my cat. So anyway, um, the, uh, the, um, not yelling, but speaking, speaking to my cat, well, just running around. Um, anyway, the, uh, what I would say is that, um, uh, the big thing with CEOs is what are the, what are the real challenges with the industry? What are the real challenges with managing an event, a, a company on a day-to-day -day basis? And I, they all seem to have different views of what that is. And I think that'll, that'll help a lot. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. What are some secrets to make cabling beautiful, even when more and more cables start going to more and more places? Go ahead, Courtney, real quick. Uh, don't use tie wraps ever on audio or video cables because they can crimp the cable. They're small and nylon and they change the diameter of the cable, which affects a coaxial cable and it can damage the shielding on microphone cables. This is what I use. I use these uh, Velcro based uh, cable wraps, uh, you can get about a package of a hundred of them and get them at Home Depot. And Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with what Courtney said. Uh, once you've laid cables out and they look pretty, they're going to get changed and they're going to get changed often. Um, what I've started using is a basket type. It's like a wireframe basket that's on the back of my desk underneath. And it allows me to lay the cables, cables everywhere they need to go. They get supported. And if I need to move things around, you just pull one out and put another one in. It works great. Next question. Tony Mobley, begin at noon in Georgia. The panel has recommended that I invest, uh, I not invest anything in the 2012 MacBook Pro doorstop I currently have sitting here, but I want to use it as a Zoom meeting monitor for a house of worship. Is the price of a hard drive replacement too much? Alexander? Yeah, if you want to keep that laptop and it still has a spinning hard drive, I would absolutely replace it with an SSD. SSDs are very, very inexpensive. The installation itself is actually quite easy to do. I put a link in the chat here with a, a tutorial from iFixit. And Alex? For the price of a uh, 
hard drive, you could probably buy a B-Link, um, no longer by Courtney. <laughs> you know, but you could probably buy a small PC that'll have the same amount of horsepower as the uh, the 2012 and, and be able to do other things as well. Uh, it's really is a doorstop and I wouldn't put any more money into trying to fix it other than having it do things like, I mean, my 2012 uh, Mac mini is what I use for my Telestrator when it's working <laughs> right now. I'm in between setups, but that's a 2012 Mac mini. So you can do things with them, but I wouldn't update anything on it. I would simply uh, use it for something really low level, but I would buy something else. It's not going to even have a power. I don't think the 2012 will have enough power to do 1080p. So it would be a 720p, which means you could use pretty much any PC to do it. And Bill? I don't know about your use case, but I I like your uh, goal, which is to take old technology that doesn't work for the optimal use and find a use for it. I have my iPad mini four that I've had for probably nine years and it was sitting in a drawer and I thought, oh, I'm having trouble because during office hours, I can't see the questions that are coming in from the audience. Too many things going on here. So uh, I just set it up with the lightest possible view of Mukana and that's all it does now. It's never going to have another function, just that one thing that it helps me with. The screen's still fine. So I like recycling and not trying to, you know, just end up tossing them in the trash if there's any utility left in them. So good instinct. And there we have our first hour. Thank you so much to our producers for all of those great questions. And as we make this transition into speaking about global events, really, if you've even been on office hours, you've already been a part of producing a global event, but we have uh, a lot of great panelists who will be able to share some of their, their insights into it, especially as we are going into uh, a new year. Many of you are looking at either you've got events that you're working on and the possibility of them wanting to have a greater footprint globally. And what does it really take to, to do that? Yes, we understand time, we understand talent, but what other nitty gritty nuts and bolts that you need to be aware of and that this is a great opportunity for us to really dive into this conversation and almost, you know, by the end of the show, have a checklist that we can, um, that we can go through to, to help you ensure that you are producing the best global event possible. Alex, let's get started with you. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things for us to think about as we think about global events. Um, I thought I, I I saw the subject come up, Josh and Liberty worked this out. And I was like, I was like, oh, this would be a good one. Uh, so uh, one of the things that you, you do see us doing a global event every day with office hours, and there's a couple things that are important. One is comms. Uh, comms are pretty important to uh, making a global event work. And you really have to think about that infrastructure. Where the Unity comms is probably one of the more popular ones, even at a higher level, just because it's relatively inexpensive and easy to set up. Uh, for some of the events that we do, we use ClearComs uh, Agent IC, which is a bit more expensive and a lot more feature filled. So it just depends on what you're trying to um, actually put together there. But comms are going to be a huge piece of what you do. You need to be able to, especially if you are you have a global team, people have to be working and they're not they can't see each other. They can't walk over there and uh, really figuring out how you're going to set those up. Um, are going to is going to make a big difference. The second thing is is really art. Do you have multiple physical events, or is it all is it all going to be digital? Um, and uh, and and I I have to admit that I've I've ceased to call them virtual events and just call them digital only events. You know, so there's digital first events and digital only events um, because the virtual I think has been like webinar has the word has been ruined you know, by 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 the in the last couple of years. Um, and uh, so for a digital only event, um, then you really have to figure out what's going on with 
your users. What is their, then this is a, for all events, this is something that most people don't think about, but you want to think about the user um, experience, their entire experience arc from the time they hear that there might be an event at some point in the future um, to the time to a couple of weeks after the event. What is every point in, what is every point that you, that you, how you affect them, how you interact with them? How do they feel? Do they feel like they have too much communication? Do they feel like they don't have enough? Do they know where to go next? Um, do they know how to make this actually work? I talked to a couple of people, for instance, on an event last week that they said, well, I got to the end of the keynote and I didn't know where to go. So I left. <laughs> you know, so, so it was like, you know, so it was like, it was like, I didn't know what to do after that. And so thinking about where they're going to, they may fall off, where they may fall apart, where things may not work. Do those folks that are in a digital only event or in the digital portion of a digital first event, do they need to interact with us? Do they, do we need to be able to talk to them? live during the show? Are we going to bring them into the show? Those are some other things to think about there. When you think about multiple locations, and I think this is what's going to, what we're going to see is that in, we're going to see people starting to do events that are in multiple physical locations. So these are the digi the new digital first events. I'm going to do an event in eight cities. I'm going to have eight ballrooms. I'm going to have LED walls in front of those. I'm probably in a digital first event. No one's going to be standing on any of those stages. Um, it's going to be, there's going to be virtual uh, speakers mixed with speakers that might be in the same room, but they're all, they're all in a, some kind of studio environment. And the real thing to think about there is that we're talking to a lot of people about these because we're bidding on a bunch of these next year is that you really want to move to that digital first where there's a studio. If you start having multiple cities, you just, as a speaker, you need more information in front of you. And that information is not really possible. It's not possible to give you the information that you need when there's an also an audience in front of you. <laughs> so you need to, we need to separate you from that so that you can have a series of monitors and make that work um, and get, you know, and so then, but then all those audiences, if you want them to be on an equal playing field, all those audiences um, need to have um, a kind of a, be able to look at an eye to eye kind communication. So you want to be thinking about like, and, and if sometimes there is, I, we had another meeting last week that was with someone that the people in the room are definitely more important than people watching <laughs> by a lot, <laughs> like they paid a lot more money to be there than everyone else. And so maybe you do build it as a, this is where the hybrid starts to actually make sense is that there are some people that paid a lot of money to be there. And that's primarily why they came. And um, you're going to give them a different experience. And if you're online, you get to watch a less experience and that's, but that's a, a very, very distinct thing. Um, but I do think that when we're at the very beginning of these global events, you know, this is, uh, in the next few years, we're going to see, you know, like people love going to theater, but TV is still the big game. <laughs> you know, like, right. you know, like, and so, and hybrid events are like, you know, people love theater and they love TV and they love movies. Not many people want to watch theater on their TV. Like just do like, just think about it. the last stage play that you watched on TV. I can't think of more than five minutes of one. Uh, I love, I do like going to the stage and seeing things in, in, in person. I like going to theaters and watching that. I don't necessarily want to watch a stage play from, uh, you know, from my, from, from afar. So we really have to rethink how we, um, you know, handle those audiences, how we serve those audiences. There was some, some keywords that popped out as you were speaking with you saying like in these meetings, you're having these meetings now for what's coming next year, years to come. Who's in the, in the room for those meetings and how long is that pre-production look like? 
you know, we try to keep the pre-production for global meetings to be, you know, uh, at least two months, you know, um, you know, in, in a distance. And for, for larger events, we're talking six months to eight months, typically. Um, there's a handful of uh, events that I work on that they take like two weeks off after the event and then they start up. You know, like they they they, they have postmortems for weeks, and of of like with all the different teams about what worked and what didn't work, and they they figure that all out, and then they immediately pick. And and a lot of times their sales happened. You know, a lot of big big events. The selling of the expo happened during the expo, or even right. sometimes before the expo, where they. They, they know kind of where the expo is and they have a pretty good idea where it's at. It's about 80% sold, 60% sold, whatever, that by the end, because usually what they tell you is like by the end of the, the event, you know, prices go up <laughs> like, like we, you know, and everything else. And because now you're going to make it hard for us to figure out what we're doing next year. And so, so there's, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that happen even, and, and a lot of times they're thinking during the event of what they want to do differently the next year. And, um, and so they have a bunch of meetings for a month or two and then they're, planning and selling and doing things. There's very little time off for some of the largest events that we work on. Tony? I want to say thank you to Alex Lindsay and all of Sauer's community for the opportunity to have a global conversation on Conversation with Tony Mobley. But more importantly for me, I want to say thank you because I am working with a small church that is able to have a global ministry because of office hours. And it might sound funny to all of you here and those watching, but the fact of the matter is, even though there are just a very few people involved in this streaming of this house of worship, it is the opportunity to have a global sharing of that ministry. And so I want to say thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. And, and, and it probably is kind of funny to, to all of you for me to be saying this, but the fact of the matter is that it is a global event. And uh, I thank you. I thank this community. I thank those who, who and I, I'm not thanking COVID, but I am thanking Alex and the community for this opportunity. And Tony, if I could jump in there for a moment of because we while we're talking about global events and sometimes we're looking at like these big global events. But to your point of the the service each week is an online global event. How does your team prep for that each week? Well, uh, they would say that I am constantly pushing them for excellence even though we are in a small arena in terms of how we put the production together. And we have uh, weekly meetings, sometimes several different meetings. I'm pushing them uh, with some of the office hours uh, structure in terms of prepping, 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 but they want to make sure that I allow room for the, uh, uh, let us say the entity that the higher power to to be involved in the experience. So I'll leave it there. Okay, and Jesse. Uh, yeah. So maybe just some thoughts about uh, what a global event is. You know, the this thing called the internet is a worldwide web and has been for a long time. So a lot of uh, 
you know, the concept of what we're doing with global events is not really new, and, but there is a lot of hype around the word, word global, and I think that will fade into the future, and it'll just become more of a, a norm to have, you know, uh, maybe the difference in the last few years is we see more people on these video conferencing platforms internationally than we have before if we weren't inside of the sort of uh, business world or international trade world. Uh, where that video conferencing is is standard, um, but I think it's also important with any uh, global event where we have people from different cultures and language backgrounds to focus the event toward the people who actually have shown up for the day and really look at the the roster of attendees and and uh, produce a a live event that's focused towards who's shown up as far as uh, supporting people with different language groups. Um, but then the flip side of that is you're also uh, potentially creating a, a production that uh, can be shared globally. So kind of attending to the live people, creating a recording that can be shared um, throughout uh, the world uh, in a useful way. Um, and then also, you know, uh, what's becoming more common that's very helpful when you're jumping across very wide time boundaries is to consider when people are watching those um, those pieces if they're attending live, and to also create uh, website widgets with adjustable schedules so you don't have to do all these uh, timing uh, conversions. Um, but uh, yeah, I think putting the support where it needs to be on the live event and having the uh, translators and captioners and deciding if you're going to do you know breakout rooms. Um, you know, in your in your sessions, um, and uh, just supporting the people that are there is really important. And and having, if it's really going to be truly an international audience for every session, you know, have all of those language options and all of those accessibility options in every session. All right, thanks, Courtney. Yeah, if you're producing a live global event like we do every day here on Office Hours, you got to be conscious of time. Uh, since we're on a spinning globe, uh, there's a good app uh, on Windows called Clock, and it has a world clock. And it gives you uh, this information. I'm sure there's something very similar built into the Mac operating system. And you just add uh, city locations over here, and it shows you the local time in each of those city locations. And it shows them on the map here, which shows you also where the sunlight is. Um, so that you know uh, when someone's moving into darkness, when someone's coming out of dawn. Uh, and so be aware of uh, any participants that you're going to or any audience that you want to hit as to what time of day it is there. Because uh, maybe in the middle of the night and just by adding uh, all your cities to this global clock, you can keep an eye on what time it is in each of the local areas over there. Uh, so that's a handy thing to have on your machine to keep you on time and make you more aware that it may be in the middle of the night if some people are participating. Also, if you're doing a global event, you probably want to record it so that uh, people can time shift it and uh, view it at a more opportune time if they're not participating live. And Alex? A lot of great points. Um, I, I think that one thing is that, that, that Liberty just uh, had talked about was um, the, uh, that the global events don't have to be large. Like we are doing a global event, you know, for a couple hundred people. Uh, and, and so when you think about it, it's, it's, it can be of any size. It can be 200, 2000, 200,000. We are going to see more and more really large ones. Um, as Jesse had pointed out, the, 
um, the, the, you know, figuring out how you're going to do translations is really important. Um, what we do is we try to, we, you know, English and Spanish are really popular. Um, and then after that, we go to the UN six, um, you know, for translation. And then after that, we really have to serve everybody. <laughs> like if, so with, when you go to the UN six and I can't always list them all off, but when you go to the UN six and you say, okay, we're just going to support the UN six, that covers an enormous percentage of your, of your viewers. And it, avoids a lot of politics. So when you do a little bit less or a little bit more, um, as soon as you do like seven or eight languages, then everybody wants their language, you know? And so you have to kind of think through, you know, what that's going to look like. And usually it goes from six to like 12 or 14 really fast um, to make that work. Um, one thing that that it, that can be done, and I would recommend audio over captioning. Remember that only a handful of languages can be captioned effectively um, without using AI because they, they simply don't have a a stenographer system that would work like Mandarin or Hindi. You have to go through AI and a lot of times that won't be as accurate. Um, and so um, at that point, what you really need are interpreters that are going to give you back, um, you know, that um, the audio that you're going to feed back in um, to, to make that actually happen. And then, um, you know, one thing I would strongly recommend is, is to always remember with a global event that you are no longer constrained by time and space. Like you do not have to do something over three days or four days. You can do, you can have a moment, a day or two where everybody's going to be in different places, maybe all over the world. And they're going to watch a lot of things, but you want to be careful of, you know, you can stretch that event out. You don't have to have multiple tracks. Multiple tracks are a, they were a compromise because people were coming in you know, and they had to pay for their hotel room and they had to pay for dinners and they had to pay for flights and everything else. We did the multiple tracks because they're all there at one time. And now we want to be able to go into those things. Once you go to a global event, once you do an online event, you can have, I really think, and I, and I didn't think this before, but when I did TED Africa and I was there and we did one track, you know, for a handful of days, it was so powerful to have everybody talking about the same thing at the same time. So take the most important things and put them into one or two days, have everybody experience the same thing. Then you can do tracks for months you know, or weeks or whatever you want that are that and, and try not to have them overlap. I think Apple did that really well last year. They had all their developer series and they didn't have them overlap at all. They took all the announcements that they wanted to do and they put them on video, <laughs> put them all out. You can watch them whenever you want. You can time. But if you want to discuss things, we're going to make them all, they, they figured out all the time zones they had. They talked about it across different time zones in different, different areas. And it was probably one of the more effective ways I've seen um, that kind of thing approached. And I'll add on to what Jesse touched on saying, like culture, really embracing that and, and understanding the audience that you're serving. For example, things like if you are doing something in Canada, there are land acknowledgements that have um, come into play, not only like on site, but I've seen and participated in virtual events where they do that at the, the, at the front of it. Um, we've done some work with an organization that's in Kenya and recognizing um, culturally, culture, language, but then also the technology side of things that, okay, even though Though it's being produced through Zoom, that okay, these folks may have to find somewhere and pay data or creating like these hub spots where, and it was for some kids programming. So there were different communities that would host so that everybody could be able to engage with the programming. So therefore, things of making sure, okay, is there not, not too much content, like what's happening on the screen that would impact their viewing experience. Um, just more on that, the nitty gritty side of like the technical part of when you are creating that content, um, 
vir virtually um, for in other cities. And then we haven't really spoken on this and I'm looking to bring on some sort of CPA that will talk to us, but then budgets. And if you are, if you've got a distributed team, what that looks like in terms of like contracts and then also paying out and also getting paid <laughs> as, as well. Just keeping um, those things in mind as a part of your as a part of your checklist. And we'll wrap with Alex to get into these questions. Yeah, and I wouldn't underestimate the power of bringing people together. And, and again, they just don't all have to come to the same place. So really finding a way. And this is what we're really talking about a lot as we pitch stuff for next year is the concept of I'm going to bring 50 people together. And, and we've seen this with Google does this really well with IO. They have uh, watch parties. Now those watch parties are a little bit passive because they're in the back of the room. It's a hybrid, it's, but it's been a hybrid, hybrid quote unquote for the last you know, decade. And they have watch parties in Lagos and London and all these different Google offices will bring people in and they get to watch Google IO, the keynote together. Now what they also have is cookies and discussions and they all get to mix with other people in their area. In a lot of those areas, they were never going to make it to the U.S. So they were never going to be part of that experience because of visas, because of money, because of time, because of all those other things. And so giving them a place to congregate around other people that are like-minded in their own locale is really powerful. So I think that that's why I think that the power of these digital first events um, that, uh, that encourage people to go to a venue, and it could be something like Accidental Theater, where they're going to go and watch it there and be part of that event, you know, remotely. But then they also, you know, they, again, still can, can have can have drinks and, and coffee and, and all kinds of other things together and, and to mix that. And I think that that's going to be something that I think we're going to see explode over the next uh, couple of years. Oh, and I did want to jump in with um, John Preto, because when you did the space, uh, the space, OH space, you had talent that was also from around the world like what can you to add that hasn't already been discussed here yeah sorry i didn't raise my hand my mom's texting me about thanksgiving <laughs> so i'm having this <laughs> plan little multitasking there <laughs> we had 23 people on premise and then more behind the scenes um working on this specific project it was absolutely amazing and we had some very talented people and we met every Friday. We had a team meeting via Zoom. It's funny because Chris Fenwick asked me, what's the most important tool, whether that's physical or virtual, that we use for this project? And it was Zoom because we use Zoom all the time for planning and for building the rocket. I would leave the camera on in the garage. And if I ran into a problem, I had five or six guys there helping me build this thing. It was absolutely amazing. But the the regular Friday meeting, which was the project planning meeting, was indispensable. And then finding finding these leaders within the group. So Fenwick handled everything related to the meetings, basically the director handled everything related to production. And then Keenan. So when the zombies come, you want Keenan on your team. The guy is the most organized <laughs> project uh, director of operations. Anytime there was a challenge that had to to be overcome logistically, Keenan, Keenan and Jack together solved every every issue. Uh, Chris Widner was amazing too. He 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 was like our on site engineer. Anytime there was a problem with engineering, so we had an amazing team. Number one, and we, we were very well planned. So we had this very extensive sheet that we all uh, articulated over 
months of work, uh, including a map of the layout of the of the physical location. That was super helpful. So when we got there, we knew exactly how to set everything up. That was super useful. Uh, and then the team, but but having having be been prepared and talked through, uh, you know, food and beverage, all that, um, and and the operational roles uh, was super um, super useful to to pull this thing off. And everybody came on their own dime, and then we had a party at the end. It was an absolute pleasure to to work with uh, professionals from all over the globe. All right, let's get into these questions, Bill. First one comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He said, did Grant and Blue do the most viewed event on Zoom? And if not, what was that? Go ahead, Alex. I think you might be. I actually think that they did. I think that they're, I think that some of the, um, the Tony Robbins stuff was in the, there've been a couple other ones that have been pretty big. So I'm not hundred percent certain, but when you start getting to the tens of thousands of, of, of viewers, you're in the definitely in the top 0.1% of, of uh, digital events. So I think that they're, um, and, but now that's over Zoom, you know, and we'll talk about that in the future, but I mean, there's a lot of digital events, a lot of events that have a hundred million people that are just on TV. Next question. Tommy Schantz in St. Paul, Minnesota says, what platforms are being used other than Zoom for large digital events? Go ahead, Alex. Uh, you know, there's Hopin, of course, is one of the ones that, that generated a lot of revenue, a lot of, uh, investment. Um, I think that most of those have been a little bit in turmoil, most of the other ones. And I think that's going to be the challenge for most of the, the other digital platforms, um, is that as the C line went back and, and that all they did was digital events, um, whether many of them will be able to, um, survive that the shift uh instead of you know the big players that are already have other ways of generating revenue like zoom like microsoft um, i think it's going to be pretty challenging for a lot of these companies to um, survive a lot of their the folks that are that were key to what they did have been jumping into other, into larger pools away from from them just because they're uh concerned about their long-term longevity bill I was surprised when I went to the last Apple events virtually online, um, they were using a version of WebEx. I don't know if it's an in-house version or gen generic, but also um, when I'm seeing tags now showing up for branding on news inserts and things like that, I'm still seeing uh, WebEx's logo and I'm seeing some Teams logos showing up. So I think they're actively trying to court that uh, insert into traditional media streams, which may keep them around a while. Those are the only things I've seen. V Fairs is one that uh, that I've seen. They have successfully done. Uh, I've mentioned in the past BPTN. It's a Canadian Black Tech community, and they do global events. And that that by far was one of the best online events that I've seen with the combination of the the content, the communication, and the the chat, and and the follow up. And they also had a um, like the hall that we all talk about, the sponsor hall. So VFairs is one that I still see trucking along. I haven't seen anything too negative um, with them. So that's one of the platforms that I've seen uh, many people use on, on a larger scale. Alex? I think the, the thing that we still see is most of the event uh, organ most of the event companies are trying to desperately re reproduce the physical world inside of the virtual world. And I just feel like it 
feels even when zoom does it it feels disjointed you know and it and it doesn't feel like you know we don't have to have it feel like it was something that came from the real world and so i find that to be uh, and i think that for some audiences maybe it works but talking to a variety of people that have gone to these events they invariably get you know it, it feels even more cold because they're it's reminding them of something that they had done in the real world that isn't nearly as good in the virtual world because the virtual systems the the digital systems aren't as good at some of those things. <laughs> so you're doing something you're not as good at. And then it's reminding people of that. And then it feels more disjointed and more cold and more, um, you know, uh, fake than, than if you just did something that genuinely, uh, you know, was something else. And I will say that while Apple uses WebEx, I think that has to do with um, their legacy of using WebEx internally. And I think that it is, uh, uh, it's an embarrassment that Apple uses WebEx for what they do. They should stop doing that. Like it is a horrible platform. And it feels very, when you join their meetings, it has like a PC interface that is like loading you into the, not not Apple meetings, but I mean like their events, you know, like the when they did the developer events that were there, it has this like weird PC WebEx thing that is part of their webinar platform that is so not Apple, you know, and it's just like, oh, like, you know, WebEx needs to like re- just grind that down to zero and come back up again because if they keep on using what they've used in the past over and over again, they're going to lose lose this completely forever. And just an uh, amendment to my comment about vFairs is that I also think not just the them them as a platform, but the way that the event was produced made is what made it as phenomenal as it was. And also James Haldane says that vFairs runs on Zoom. So just an amendment there. Um, Jesse? Yeah, and uh, it would be incomplete to not mention Teams uh, just because a lot of companies still use it because uh, that's the platform that they're on and, you know, uh, maybe their IT department likes the security features. Um, it's integrated with many, all of the Microsoft apps like SharePoint and such. It's got a lot of quirkiness and, uh, you know, there's places for Microsoft to learn from Zoom or other platforms there as far as the interactivity and how video is is managed and how things are displayed and and uh, especially with the new uh, production features that are coming up on on Zoom a lot of those tools are really great for for folks uh, producing events uh, but Teams is still really out there in a big way and I still use it all the time and there's a lot of headaches uh, there but just to say it's out there and Maybe we can be a voice for uh, some of the changes that we want to see in Teams. And Alex. I don't think Teams is going to catch up. <laughs> I just don't think, I don't think it has the team. I think the problem that everybody has is that Liminal was bought by Zoom, you know, and that, and that you have a, an actual production crew inside uh, the company. And I don't see anybody else doing that. And I don't think see anybody else. And I don't think there's that many people that could. Um, and so I think that that's a big problem. And I also think that, um, you know, Teams is still limited to 720p after the first, after the second person joins. So when there's two people there, it's 1080p. As soon as you put the third person in, I'm sorry, third person joins at 720. And that, you know, is very, almost everybody else is running at 720 instead of 1080. And when you get used to 1080, it feels lesser than, you know, and so you know that you're in something lesser than. And then finally, the problem with Teams is that someone like me, who is in, has my main account is a Microsoft account, is an exchange account. I will never 
ever sign into somebody else's teams again. <laughs> like, like if you, if anyone's ever gotten into that hole where you get your, your permissions all tied up in somebody else's teams. So the problem is, is that it's great for in, in room stuff. But if I see a teams event, I will immediately go, nope. Like, and it has nothing to do with the quality of teams or the event or anything else. I just won't touch it because touching my Microsoft login is a disaster, you know, like, you know, and they've, and it's because they've made it very good for people to be in companies, but it is not a, it is a, super big problem for teams to have bigger events because anybody who knows what will happen to their their team's login or their microsoft login when they tie into somebody else's won't ever touch that next question douglas carmichael uh, wonders how should you as a producer and or production manager handle healthcare coverage for internationally traveling crews when should you add services like global rescue and he's got a link there along with conventional travel health insurance Go ahead, Alex. I mostly do that in outside of Europe. Um, so outside of Europe, I usually have some kind of ver version of Global Rescue. What Global Rescue is, there's different versions of this, but it basically says I you have insurance that will pay to get you to a hospital that is more modern, you know. And so if you're in in certain parts of the of the world, you're not sure what you're going to do, and you don't have the insurance. You don't want to be stuck with going to you don't want to be stuck with going to a local hospital that may not be there because that's all your coverage is going to handle or if you're going to have coverage to go to those things. Um, the funny thing is in Europe, the, 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 they don't even know what to do with an American having to pay. So usually I've, I broke my toe in Germany and they just didn't, they said that they would charge me, but no paperwork ever showed up. I think they just don't have a system for it. <laughs> you know, so, so I, um, so, but, but I, in other areas I do, but we usually leave that up to the crew to manage. We haven't really done it. You know, we've done it for our employees, but when we have external crews, uh, we don't. We, we usually expect them to to manage themselves. And Courtney, yeah, I remember uh, the U.S. is one of the few places on earth that doesn't have national health coverage, so uh, you may be covered by emergency services and any of those other companies. So if you go to Wikipedia, there's a good uh, list of emergency telephone numbers, and you know we use nine one one here in America. But in Europe, it's a 112, and there's a whole chart of uh, emergency police ambulance fire uh, numbers in different countries on Wikipedia. And it'd be handy to print this chart out and give it if you're going to be globe hopping uh, to know what numbers to call if you have an emergency jump up. This isn't for, you know, if you get uh, sick or something and require hospitalization, that's not an emergency. That would have to be come under your insurance or, or some type of travel insurance, as Alex was talking about. But for emergency services, if you require immediate health attention, know those numbers to call emergency services in whatever country you're in. Next question. John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. Most multi-site events enable live chat reactions, including office hours chat. Evidence suggests that conflicting messages via text inhibits retention. What's the line between encouraging and discouraging chat? Alex? That's a great question. Uh, and you're absolutely right that having just raw chat going up into, a, into an event is a horrible idea. Like it's just not, you know, and, and we saw a little bit of what happens last week uh, when we have live chat running along the side. You don't want to let an unfiltered feed uh, into a stream. Um, now, there's a couple things related to that. One is... Um, there's other versions of Mukana, for instance, that allow us to manage large amounts of, 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 we can spread out moderation and decide what's going to show up. And usually we don't do it as a chat window going up the side, but we use it as a ticker across the bottom, but those are curated always. Um, you know, so that's a curated feed. There's, there's no way to live, you know, get live into it because 
The problem is, is that a live chat also, what, what the behavior that you'll see, which we saw last week, is someone will do a test to see if it's filtered or not. They'll just put something up really quickly. And as soon as they know it's not filtered, then that's problematic. And so if they know that they're not gonna get positive reinforcement by having a live chat going into it, they tend to not do, do as much of it, especially if they, if they act out. Um, now, if they're just arguing with it, it's fine. But if they act out um, and say things that are inappropriate, then you want the system to be able to close them out. You know, just close their close their account. You know, from from at least from the chat. Um, and so, um, and and again, you have to always when you're doing these events. You know, this isn't Twitter or Facebook. This isn't the town square. You're producing an event, and they're part of that event. <laughs> if they make it harder for you to do the event, you just not have them there like you know you know and and you just have to be very uh cut and dry about that for the most part when when folks are when you're doing a, a larger event um to to make sure that you manage it the the final thing is is that doing a large number of events between your main uh global event will allow you to build a community that is appropriate you know so the thing is is that that you can build up a lot of these things the mistake people make is by only doing one event a year or, or one event a quarter with the same group of people there's no time for them to gel there's no time to figure those things out and so what a lot of times what um what you want to do is if you can do events every week every day every month you're building up a a, a, a group of people that are part of that and then um uh, uh that makes it much more uh, much easier for you to do a global event because people are connected to it. Jesse? Uh, yeah, a couple of tips here. Uh, one is to set up your account so that chat goes to host and co-host only. And when you're doing events, uh, the groups that I work with and when I'm doing stuff solo, I, I at least throw the tip out there that uh, the presenter or panelist can strategically open up the chat whenever it's the appropriate time to do that, and also including the Q&A. And the more that the panelists encourages the, the use of those tools, the more uh, response they'll get there. Like, where's everybody from? What does everybody think about this? And then shut down the chat strategically so there's not that distraction point. Uh, the third thing I'll say is that a semi-new feature uh, within the Zoom uh, admin tools for setting up your account is the ability to delete items that are in chat. So that's important in case something inappropriate or unwanted finds itself there glued to everybody's screen, uh, you can go in and delete something. And Courtney. Yeah, I think we do it well here. And, uh, you know, a good example is that uh, Leo Laporte has been using on the Twit network for years is IRC. Uh, it would never include chat as part of the live stream, you know, on screen, but make it available to those that want to monitor it and use it as part of the show. And he uses it. It's heavily moderated. Um, so, you know, you keep the trolls out. But um, he uses it as kind of a hive mind to contribute to the conversation, even though there are three or four panelists contributing on a show. Uh, sometimes the people in the chat room have some good ideas or a topic or something that the panelists haven't thought about. And if the panelists uh, are monitoring it or the host is monitoring, he can bring it up and bring it into the conversation. So it's very useful to have in that respect. But uh, I wouldn't put it up on the screen and I wouldn't put it in unmoderated to make it available to everyone to use if they want to, uh, to have access to it. And Alex. 
Yeah, and a lot of times what happens is you can also separate who gets to chat and where it shows up. So uh, people who have been in a lot of events, this is why doing lots of events make a difference. You can have lot people who do many events become over time super users, which means that we're not going to basically um, moderate what they say. And then folks that are at a lower tier or brand new oftentimes get moderated. So no one see, even sees their chats as they go out. We have to have a team on the back end that's sitting there approving them, you know, and, and pushing them through. And you want to do that as fast as you can. Um, but you want to make sure that you're, but you, you know, new people sometimes, you know, and, and that's again, when you can do event, events over and over again, and you get, you get a sense of it and people build up so much quote unquote, a karmic score within a system. This isn't necessarily a Makana thing. It's more of other things that we've worked with in the past. Um, you know, the, uh, one, Rob Collins also was mentioning, I've wondered why, you know, a person in the show, you know, mentioning back to the chats. And I think that, you know, having a social person or a social director is pretty common in a lot of our shows. Like I might throw it to go, hey, Liberty, what do we've got? Wh what are people saying? You know, and then someone's going to come back and, you know, Liberty might come back and say, well, we've got this great comment here and we've got this great comment there. And so, the, and a lot of times there's a set of moderators that are pushing that content to that social person. So you have to remember that a lot of times if you really want to do this well and you really want it to work, it's not a matter of opening up a chat and letting it run. It is a function of having 10, 15, sometimes 20 people on the back end flowing all of these things up for a large event and managing them all. And then it becomes a real orchestra of comments and excitement and interest. If you don't manage it like that, and, and people have a hard time getting their head around that, like, why would I need 20 people? Well, you have welcomers when people walk in. You have 20 people or 30 people or in, in Salesforce's account, 150 people that are just there to tell you where to go. You know, just, just to say hi and do you need something? You, as you build big online events, you have to also think about that kind of flow and how do you manage large numbers of people so that it's a great experience. And adding to that, what Axter said is also where are they flowing in from? Because if you have this online event and then you've got social aspect, then you have, you know, all these different places. Yes, curating that and the excitement that comes with someone. People always love to be recognized and hear their names called or their comments. And there's just a, a buzz that that comes with that. And that's part of you know, bringing bringing the event alive and the engagement and making it memorable because they remember. You always remember when somebody somebody says your name, Alex. I would highly recommend using social platforms to bring people to your event. Do not respond to them during the event. So we don't we don't like interact with them at all in those comments. We want you we want you to be part of that community to be able to interact with the actual show. So we you know unless we're unless the event is primarily on something like that. We essentially, um, we use all those social networks to drive people into a platform in which we're going to manage more powerfully because the comment systems on all social networks are worthless. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. South by Southwest may be the most global physically attended ever event. How do they match this with their online event if that's even remotely possible? I don't know that they have yet. <laughs> That's the, the 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 best answer that I I, I can give um, there uh, because when COVID hit, just their attendance numbers and just a lot of the chatter that I heard more from the back end and from um, from the speakers. I don't know that they've successfully done that yet, Alex. Yeah, w one of the things that um, I think that the hard part for physical events is to really think about the virtual needs. And I think that they have to pay more attention to it. And I think that South by Southwest really should be thinking about a virtual track that they're not trying to incorporate into the real ones. This is just another set of meet. They get, I think, 2,500 
applications. I think that, that that's what was mentioned before when they were on on our show. Um, and just take some of the extra ones, you know, and and start to experiment with these other flows, not as VODs, which is what they did in the past, which I think is not great, um, but really as interactive experiences and exper experiment with something that is interactive and play with it because it's eventually going to be their future. We're not going to keep on doing very, very large physical events. Like it's just not going to keep going for a whole variety of reasons. And so all physical event um, groups, especially ones that have more than 10 or 20,000 people, should always be thinking about how do I extend our, our reach? How do I use the position I'm in to leverage myself into the next thing? You know, and that's when with companies that keep growing over 100 years or over 50 years are always thinking about how do I leverage my current position to uh, to build my future position and comp and organizations right now that are building physical events and not paying deep attention and using those phys physical events to really leverage into the into the online events um, are giving that up. And we saw what happened with magazines and radio and <laughs> many, many other things. Of, you can see what happens when you don't do that. Um, it's it's catastrophic. Courtney. Because a lot of uh, South by Southwest has always been a large social event. It's always been a party event. It's a means of socializing, get together, sharing music and video games and uh, entertainment, forms of entertainment from other countries and other, uh, you know, other entities. Uh, and it always, you know, there's lots of parties, lots of after hour parties, a lot of drinking, a lot of uh, schmoozing going on. Uh, and it's hard to maintain that kind of social party atmosphere on a global basis remotely because, uh, you know, stumbling across and meeting something, somebody serendipitously at a bar or something uh, where you're going out and listening to music to some new bands that have, you've just seen uh, premiere their latest album at South by Southwest is uh, you're, you're not going to run into that uh, I don't think in a in a chat room or something uh, globally. So I think it's really hard to perpetuate that feeling of that particular conference, uh, where it does more than just present information in a structured manner. It's more of a social organization, a big party than anything else. Next question. Next one comes to us from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. And Chris says, "What considerations are there for over one uh, ten thousand participants on Zoom at once and integrating them into a physical event with the same number of physical attendees?" Go ahead, Alex. The the hard part is is that you'll be attempted to do some kind of hybrid event, and what happens is is that what we've seen over the last decade, because I've been working on hybrid events for a long time, is that people will come to your hybrid event. They will even give you good marks later after the thing when you send them out little questionnaires. But the um, the attrition rate of them returning to hybrid events after a couple of hybrid events, especially at the scale you're talking about, the attrition rate is extremely high and it's almost impossible to recover them. So what happens is they just aren't that excited. And, and it's not that they think that something went wrong. They'll say, oh, it was a great event. It's just that when they're busy the next week, the next year, they go, oh, I don't have time for that. You know, like I don't, I don't feel the urge that I have to be there. And so not getting this right is almost worse than not doing it. You know, like it's almost better to have this exclusive thing that you can't see or that we're saying, we're just going to stream it. We're not, you know, but the, the main thing is, is that if you're going to create something that you're trying to incorporate people into, you really have to focus on it. And this is why we're focusing heavily on digital first events where, we're going to put the speakers in another space where they can really interact with the online audience and really interact with a physical with the physical audience that's there 
as soon as you put the audience and the speaker in the same room, the, the online audience will feel like they're in the back of the room. There is no way to avoid that. I'm just like, I, I, I've been doing this for a decade. I've, I've done every version of this that I can possibly think of. I've been given budgets of a quarter million, half million, million dollars to figure this out. They're always going to feel like they're in the back of the room, you know, and they're always going to, you know, go into a passive mode where they put it in the corner and then they go back to what they're working on and you're, you're, you're devastating your connection to them. So um, you have to figure out how you're going to interact with them directly. And so, oftentimes I would say, I would rather have a par two parallel shows then try to do a hybrid, like just have a virtual show where the speakers go and interact with them and, and a physical show where they interact with them, but trying to do it all at the same time, um, over time, over many events with the same audience, you'll, you'll see attrition rates, high attrition and, rates. And Jesse. Yes. Hybrids are very hard. Um, I think there's some value in trying them to some extent and people have different opinions about whether there's any value in, in that. But, uh, I've I've done a lot at, at this at this point, and it really, if you're going to get a um, panelist or presenter up there, they have to be highly, highly skilled and prepared to uh, manage those two groups at the same time. Uh, some of the things that you can try out to uh, sort of equalize that experience, as much as um, as much as it's planned, and as much as again the panelists can manage, uh, would be something like head and shoulders uh, view of the presenters so that when you're looking at everybody in their Zoom uh, box, that they're sort of framed in the same way. Um, you can also show the room for the online attendees. That's a request that I often hear. For some reason, the people online want to see the big group of people and they want to see the architecture or the layout, uh, maybe because they're not there and they maybe it's just between or during during a break or something like that. Um, but really, many of the, the same principles for um, any online event apply. It, we're just scaling up when you go to like 10,000 people or so. But it's really hard to manage that that uh, participant equity, and it's never uh, a perfect fit with the plan. But um, it, can, it can go okay if everybody's really well prepared and, and rehearsed. So a lot of, a lot of caveats there. Um, but I think there's value because, you know, it's a, this cross pollination of people on site and, and remote. And, um, that is a new opportunity for a lot of people. Oh, and one other thing I'll just mention is, um, showing the gallery view to the folks or showing the people at home, uh, to the folks that are on site. Uh, you know, there is, there needs to be some QC of what you're showing and, and some decisions about when you're showing those on or at home people to the on site people so that they um, are shown appropriately and are, are not, don't become a distraction for the people on site so they can focus on uh, the panelists because that's what they really paid their ticket. You mm -hmm. know, why they, why they bought their ticket is to see who's presenting and to see that material. And the folks that are online are an addition to the group, but um, you know, that's not why they bought their ticket. Right. Next question. Next one comes to us from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. First time world travelers are often culture shocked by being unfamiliar with local customs and cultural expectations. What are some things to be cautious about and how to navigate sensitive areas? Go ahead, Richard. Um, we often mention quite a lot in office hours. Uh, humor is one of those things to be very cautious about. Um, world traveling is an exciting and uh, a daunting prospect um, that often 
it just means you have to be respectful and slightly more aware. Uh, though having said that, we should probably all be aware when we're out in public nowadays, given the, the current uh, vibe of the world. Um, but essentially, just be respectful to who's around you. Be uh, open. Be uh, you know, kind of uh, embrace what's being asked of you or given to you. Or you know, uh, keep an eye out on what, what people are saying or requesting of you, and be patient um, because you know explaining yourself in one language is is hard enough. Explain yourself in a completely different language is is even harder so be careful of humor uh, and uh, be patient alex i find the, the handful of things that i that i do i spend a lot of time in a lot of different countries i know how to say please and thank you and good morning and good afternoon in in, a, in about 30 languages um you'd be surprised that if you you know if you're in ethiopia and you say hamasaganalo you'll just immediately get an attention someone will say something even if you don't say it perfectly they're not going to be used to um it, you being able to say that um and it's just it's a show that you've made some effort in some respect um overall uh, when in doubt don't say anything and don't you know don't 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 stick your finger into things that don't that, that, that you don't know where they're going to go so um when in doubt be timid um not not be aggressive when um outside of your event space and even when you're talking to folks um, you don't want to be highly opinionated. You don't want to be high, loud. You don't want to be all those things or things you just stay away from. Also avoid idioms and anything that is, um, that is smacks of American You just or your culture. You just want to use plain verbs and nouns when talking to folks and you'll find that it's a pretty effective way to move through those things. And Courtney. Uh, be careful about nonverbal gestures because hand gestures that are perfectly okay in one country are naughty or not accepted in other countries and uh, also dress uh, there's dress codes in certain places and religious places certain places require head covering certain places require uh, no shorts you know what might be appropriate on a vacation somewhere is you know an insult to the people that are around you in certain countries so be careful on your style of dress because it it may not fit in. You may stand out as a tourist for one thing, and it, you may be violating cultural customs as uh, in the worst case. And Alex. And then finally, you know, to, to what Courtney was saying, pay a lot of attention to people around you. Just pay attention to what's going on and what they're doing and try not to step out of that line uh, while you're there. And then um, the, you know, you so you want to make sure that you kind of kind of fit into that and just don't complain. Don't complain about things that oh, I can't believe. Blah, 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 blah. Like you, you don't know what 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 the issues are. You don't know what the process is, and you're being disrespectful in general. So, uh, just don't complain. Next question, Douglas Carmichael. For a large global event on Zoom, would you use a webinar, a meeting, or event slash on Zoom? Alex, um, for a large global event right now, I would probably um, use. I mean, what, what we do use for these is, is a different version of Makana or Commenda. Um, and then we embed streams into them to make that actually work. And we usually, but usually we're not trying to do, again, multiple, um, uh, multiple tracks. Uh, I think that uh, my temptation right now is to, for the larger events is, you know, we usually build something kind of bespoke for those things outside of that. Um, I, I find that the, the webinar and the, event platforms on Zoom are pretty frustrating, I think would be a good word for it. Um, and so while I think that they're ahead in a lot of their production tools, I think that the webinar and, and on Zoom event process is a pretty hard, I wouldn't, I wouldn't build 
we, we do we do the Michael Krasny show there, but we won't do it for much longer there <laughs> on the webinar event because it's just uh, the quirkiness of those platforms is is pretty pretty painful. Um, and uh, meetings, you know, can work. The biggest problem with meetings is just focusing people's attention, being able to say the the, the thing that webinar gives you is I'm only going to let you look at this for right now. If meetings added that where you could lock people's view and push everybody, you know, and, 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 and have it truly be not just spotlit, but locked into a show and then released, I probably would never use webinars or on, on events again. You know, so, so like that's like literally that's the one feature in meetings that you don't have. Next question. Harshi Travidi in Daytona Beach, Florida, here on the panel, says during 2020, The Roots held an event called Africa Day on their channel where each country had a session which had a DJ or musician during the 24-hour span. It required the viewer to follow the YouTube sessions. Could we run a global set like that? Alex? You can. I I get that they were probably trying to, to get people to go to one web page or another. It's just a little bit of a painful way to do it. I, I, if I was going to do that, I would still do it all in one stream. You know, and simply be bringing people in from different streams to make that work. So having them do a back-end transport to one location and streaming out from there. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says, an article about Andre Rial mentioned multiple languages being spoken by the crew, but the sound check was done in French. Why would that be when English is the de facto standard language for so many technical communities, including ours? Go ahead, Richard. Um, I think you find that English is not always the standard language and I'm not too sure in this case um, because I, I, I'm unfamiliar with it. Um, but you know, English is a very widely spoken language, but it's certainly not de facto in very, very large parts of the world. And French often is, um, uh, especially in the continent of Europe. Um, I would also say that sometimes artists like a specific language and they like to communicate in that specific language. Uh, in this case, the artist is Dutch, so he may just particularly like uh, French and the sound of it. Um, but uh, I, I, I won't speculate any further. Next question. Uh, Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Can Office Hours do a global event where every country in the world has a representative? How would we pull that off? Interesting. Go ahead, Alex. Oops, I think you're muted. Probably, it'd be pretty challenging to do at the moment. I guess you could do it all, just they couldn't represent themselves from their own countries because connectivity would become a big issue. But if you did something out of DC, theoretically, you could um, probably get most, you know, DC and New York and Brussels. Uh, between those, you could probably accumulate mo enough people that would represent that. Um, I mean, I think that the way you would do it is probably not as all in one place, but really, um, looking at how do you have roundtables with groups of people talking about what's important to them and about taking questions in from all those countries. It'd be an interesting challenge. Next question. David Brady in New York City says, Cisco and their WebEx cloud has recently added methods to connect to any competitor's calls. Icons for Teams, Meet, and Zoom all on the controller, albeit uh, on SIP, S-I-P. Is this a sign of interoperability and can't we all just get along? Go ahead, Jesse. I would say it's not a true sign of interoperability. I do uh, audiovisual integration work at office buildings, and oftentimes the office workers need to work on multiple platforms. And the reality is there's really not many, if any, good systems that are video conferencing platform agnostic, which means you could just go in and have one system that starts up Zoom or Teams or WebEx, you often have to have multiple computers that are dedicated to 
those platforms or a bring your own device situation, uh, the ability to pipe one meeting into another is still really just using a singular uh, meeting platform. And often, uh, well, for example, like Zoom has a lot of Microsoft uh, tools within it, um, but not all of these platforms are making it possible to log on to your Zoom account and create a Teams meeting, for example, something like that. Um, but yeah, there's still challenges around uh, uh, creating sort of ultimate flexibility for any any platform when you when you enter uh, online or in an office. And Alex, uh, latency. We we used to have an interconnect that we actually used a lot of the Cisco tools for that we could bring in almost anything from Skype or Hangouts or other things like that. Um, and the latency because you're going to and from both servers, um, you know they're not they're not using the same reflectors. Um, tends to be a little painful. Next and final question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, gets the nod. I hear rumors of an upcoming global event that will have 1 million attendees. How is that even possible? Have you heard this rumor? Go ahead, Courtney. I haven't heard that rumor, but of course there's fundraisers, you know, they've been doing for years, you know, your pal Willie Nelson down there in Austin as Farm Aid which he's sponsored for many years since 1985, and they have a Farm Aid 2022 uh, in uh, this year. So it's still going on. It's an international uh, fundraiser that they put concerts on in many different cities. Also, there was the We Are the World concerts. Uh, there have been several international concerts where they have stages in different, in different cities all over the world, and they switch between them. Uh, so I guess you could consider all the attendees in all of the different venues all over the world as attending a single, uh, a single global event. Uh, so that happens, and it's happened previously in the past. And I don't know what this rumor is you're talking about. Though. And Alex, yeah, it just it, it's just a function of how interactive it is. Are are you seeing them via video? Are you seeing them via chat? Are you seeing them? Are you answering their questions? Are you so what level do a million attendees have of actually interacting? If there's no interaction, there's you know there's events every day called television that are way larger than that. So if you're simply broadcasting out to a lot of people, it's not necessarily um, it's, it's a big event, and a lot of people are watching it one time, but it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that. That it's uh, it's that hard to do. It's really a matter of how are you going to take their questions and how are you going to interact with them that that drives uh, how doable it is. And there we have it, another global office hours show. Thank you so much to our producers for your questions and all of the conversation going in the chat to our panelists for your insights and feedback. And of course, our back end crew, the production crew for without which we would not be able to bring you this show each and every single day. I want to quickly highlight what's coming up this week. We've got tomorrow, Tuesday, election graphics for review. We will have experts on um, speaking about the election and that's the election elections in the U.S. On Wednesday, we have Dante Audio 102. On Thursday, what's in your bag? Bill Davis and Jason Bache will be talking about traveling for production on Friday. It is the OH Kilo Show planning. And last but not least, Saturday, the education hour. And you'll see um, just a, this correction here is the failure of media literacy. And I believe today we have hit the 52,625 miles. That's where we've reached with
with the show today. So thank you so much for everyone for participating. Head over to officehours.global to learn more about what we do here. And it's time to head into after hours. So we'll see you soon. Bye.